Well, here we are. It is the final episode of series one. So I guess I want to take this moment just to say thank you so much to everyone who has tuned in and listened. Thank you especially to those who've left a review. It really means a lot and I read them all. So thank you so much. We are having a series two, which will be coming out soon. So make sure you subscribe to make sure you don't miss any episodes. If you have any thoughts on the show so far, I'd love to hear from you. So just email hello at outofhours.org. And until then, please do subscribe to make sure you catch the first episode of series two. You won't want to miss it. But I will say this. There are a lot of us that are gripped by a certain mission and something meaningful that they want to contribute to. But often we're paralyzed to act because we think too big and we struggle to start small and to experiment. We just deliver that quality consistently. It compounds over time and can have a really big impact. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient and more confident. There are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave, and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Andy Am. Andy is a product leader and coach and the founder of Angel Investing School. He's also a 2020 advisory board member for London Tech Week and was recently awarded an MBE. The Angel Investing School aims to empower a new breed of angel investors. Angel investors, for those of you who don't know, are high net worth individuals who provide financial backing for early startups or entrepreneurs in exchange for a percentage of ownership. The Angel Investing School aims to teach professionals from all backgrounds how to get started with investing in startups. We talk about what you should really consider when monetizing your project, why it's helpful to iterate in public, his two and five rule, and why to keep a personal tracker. I am a longtime reader of his newsletter, Andy AM on Minorities and Tech, and I suggest you sign up too. The link is in the show notes. A bit of a disclaimer on this episode, the audio is not as good as usual, but I hope you stick with it because it's full of insights. Thanks so much for joining. It is so great to have you on it. It's my pleasure. I've enjoyed a lot of episodes, actually. I've listened to quite a few. The Random Crew one, I remember. Checked one, obviously, I listened to as well. Homeboy Industries was the first one I listened to. And I love the diversity of different side projects. It's tech, it's non-tech, it's a newsletter, public sector, private sector. One of the reasons I really wanted to get you on is because I remember the conversation that we had. And I think one of the things that I remember from that conversation was we were talking a lot about following curiosities and following just the stuff you find interesting with actually without a big kind of mission behind it. And we were talking about how missions developed retrospectively often absolutely and I think by doing that you kind of like 
take the pressure off yourself. But I remember watching this TED talk in university about 12 years ago with Elizabeth Gilbert. And she talks in this talk about how like the, the Romans used to believe in this um, spirit called the genius that lived outside of themselves in the walls in which they, they worked in. So anytime that they really succeeded at a task or were rewarded or for an achievement or success, they just felt like they connected well with their genius. And actually, when they didn't do so well, they weren't really harsh on themselves because they just felt like they didn't connect with their genius. In that way, you're never really narcissistic of, and you never really have that feeling of like, oh my gosh, my book went to number one and I've got so much pressure on myself to go to number one again. If I don't, oh my gosh, I'm going to start drinking because you never really connect with all of that being attributed to you. There's always a sense of that ambiguity and that uncertainty. I know it's not all me. It's like even with this recent MBE, I'd be lying if I said that it was all me. It's thanks to you that, that there is a me. It's thanks to me working and collaborating with all these different people that I'm able to be rewarded in this way. And actually this reward represents a community effort and it represents a lot of ambiguity that I wasn't in control of. Like I didn't control who nominated me. I didn't control what they put down on the paper, but I do actually believe that like, as I continue to follow my curiosity, it will lead me to, to more and more opportunities because I believe I'm an opportunity magnet. How they will manifest, I don't know. And I'm not in control and I'm okay with that. I think it's that thing of almost like welcoming and believing in serendipity. Mm. One of the things that I think I respect about you, um, both through the conversation that we had a year and a half ago and just through kind of following the stuff you put out in the world and the way that you talk about things, is I think that you're very intentional with how you live your life. And I say that because you've got a, is it, she's still three years old? Yes, yes. A three-year-old daughter, you've got a lot of different things on the go. But yeah, I think the way that you talk about things and the way you go about things seems very intentional in terms of how you allocate time, how you allocate focus, how you allocate attention. And I'd love to start by just asking, firstly, a very practical question, which is roughly how do you spend your time across those different pursuits? And then secondly, what are the kind of strategies that you use to allocate focus and attention and prioritize? I love this topic. So firstly, even within the question, if we deconstruct it, how do you spend your time? And there's two parts to that question that's fascinating. One is the fact that we acknowledge that we're spending that time. There's a cost to time, you know, because once it's lost, we can't get it back. And the fact that that time is attributed as your time says that you have some sort of autonomy if you choose to, over how you intentionally use that time that we have. And for me, I think I had a pivotal moment. I've had two pivotal moments. One is when um, I started off my career at a massive consultancy, Ernst & Young, and I felt like I was 60% of my true self. It didn't make for a pleasurable experience at times because of that. And the second is when my father passed away when I was growing up. And both of those experiences had this inflection point of me feeling like, I'm not going to be here very long on this earth. The least I could do is be my most authentic self in every environment that I'm in because it's exhausting when I'm not. And I realized in that moment that like work shouldn't be the son of my universe. I can only meet up with my friend after work if I can, if I get off from work on time or, you know, I'm flying to this country to do work even if I don't want to because I need to get paid. And I realized that work was governing too much of how I spend my time. And it wasn't necessarily work that I loved. So from that moment on, I kind of had this almost like a vision of the future of me being on my deathbed and saying to myself, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to ask for technology. I'm not going to ask for my laptop. I'm not going to ask for my smartphone, for my investments, for my houses, 
I'm going to ask to spend more time with my family. So how can I optimize my time today to do more of that now? So I kind of intentionally went on this journey over five years of really figuring out what the things that I love to do. How do I love to spend my time in terms of work and contribution to the world? And this mission really took hold of me around democratizing access to technology for people like me. You know, so how actually can I make the technology sector more accessible for people from lower social economic backgrounds, people who are black and brown, people who are female? Because at the moment, we're not being invited to participate in this industry and this opportunity of wealth creation. And that doesn't sit right with me. And then I went on this intentional journey and basically creating this portfolio career where I'd work three days a week freelancing with large corporates so helping them set up their products management teams. And then two days a week, I'd spend it with family or work on side projects. Um, and one of those side projects that was born out of that time was the Angel Investing School. I started journaling about five years ago and I call my journal a tracker. And I use a tool called Notion currently. And in that database, um, not on a daily basis, because I'm in the habit of just doing it when I feel like doing so, I'd enter a, a particular topic, like I'm doing this podcast for Out of Hours. And I may even attach an image, for example. So, you know, once this is released, I might get feedback from someone on LinkedIn or WhatsApp that they really enjoyed this episode or it helped them make a certain decision in their life. And I want to capture that in, in the language and in the essence that was shared. And I'll attach it in my tracker to that topic around this podcast. So that in six months, when I'm reviewing all of these topics that have been tagged, like the feedback I've received, proud moments such as getting an MBE, I can really start connecting the dots and analyzing actually what I want to do more of and what I want to do less of so I can move with more intention. And that's a constant cycle I've been in for the last five or six years. And it's almost like having a Google Analytics board for yourself. And it's definitely helped me make uh, more intentional and wiser decisions um, around what my yes and my no is. So I say no to about 90% of the podcasts or opportunities that come my way because I know from my tracker that it doesn't, it's not value aligned and it doesn't align with where I'm trying to go. That sounds amazing but very time intensive how does that work on a day-to-day basis like do you allocate time every day to it about one hour across the whole week which is not that much time really and I think because I'm in the habit of doing it when I feel like it I end up doing it I'll say three four times a week so like if I look through the tracking now I know one of the last things that I've put in there was the fact that I was awarded an MBE how this made me feel I also captured in there a conversation I had with my aunt, my dad's sister in Ghana, and how she felt about our family, like taking this sacrifice to come to this country for us to get these opportunities. And actually what an honor it is that that sacrifice has been rewarded with something like an MBA. And the reason I captured that is because I know I can't rely on my memory alone to remember that moment and how I felt in five years. To see all of the love and generosity that people have shared with me cross social platforms which is on the one hand really exhausting because it's like 300 plus messages but on the other hand almost overwhelming in in an emotional way because it's like wow these people that I don't even realize I'm reaching are showing me such genuine love and support for this accolade this is really meaningful to more than me so I've captured all of those pieces of feedback in this tracker and that's where it's time intensive it's like I've just screenshot and I've just attached but it's worth it and it's time well spent. And I feel like as people, we don't spend enough time planning. We spend a, lot, a bit too much time just in the motion of doing and getting on with things. Every half year, I'd spend about three hours, like what you do at work when you have a half day retreat, 
And during that half day is when I'll do my mid-year review and really analyze the trends and connect the dots between the themes. You know, for me, like I've always governed a lot of the decisions that I've made based on measuring my life in decades and not days. How the decisions that I'm making today chipping away at the long-term aspiration that I'm trying to achieve rather than the short-term gratification of what I'm doing today. And, you know, if I translate that to my career, it's often meant taking the jobs that are, you know, paying a little bit less in order to be on my craft and to get to a certain position of influence what I'm doing to then level up in an extraordinary way and, and shape the kind of lifestyle that I have today. Some people hate their job and think entrepreneurship is the answer and jump. For me, I value so much working for people and being employed, not even just for the job security and the financial security, but actually because I'm getting paid to learn. And I genuinely see it like that. It's like an inversion of school to me. Like for me, that was such a privilege. When I've had the opportunities to travel back to Ghana or to you know Soweto in South Africa, when I've worked in South Africa, it really hit me hard understanding that like there's young people in those environments who have the same potential that I do that just have less access to opportunity. And it's by no fault of themselves that they were born in that environment. And I had no control over the fact that I was born into this environment in London. It sounds like you're, you said that you have intentionally not centered your life around work, but it does sound like you have intentionally centered your life around a mission or mm. some level of purpose. And I want to talk a little bit about how accessible it is for people to live their life around a mission. Mm. I think being mission-led in terms of how you live your life, it's spirituality, it's, it's having principles, it's integrity, you know, all of these values are accessible to everyone. But in terms of how you construct your career around those values or those missions, I'm curious your thoughts around whether you think it is a privilege. I think it's a real privilege to, have, to be a hopeless optimist, as my friend Matt Pennycard would say. Because you could be born into a certain circumstance, like I could be born in Afghanistan during the years where they were going through warfare and actually don't have that privilege to be a hopeless optimist mm -hmm. because of the environment that I've been born in. And I recognise that and I understand that. And I'm not going to downplay that and act like everyone on the planet can. But I will say this, there are a lot of us that are gripped by a certain mission and something meaningful that they want to contribute to. But often we're paralyzed to act because we think too big and we struggle to start small and to experiment and to think about how the small contributions we make on an ongoing basis, like if we just deliver that quality consistently, it compounds over time and can have a really big impact. About a month ago, I released something called the AIS Dictionary, the Ancient Investing School Dictionary. And it's a hundred terms that we often use in the startup and tech ecosystem that to the average person means nothing. And it gives a definition for what that term means. It gives an example of that term in practice. And it just makes it more accessible for people that want to access this space. And the reason it was important for me to release that, even though it's such a small thing for me to do, is that language can serve as a barrier into a space. We see it with doctors and we see it with lawyers. And it's the same in tech. And I recognize that even though it's common sense to me and the small bubble of people that I operate within, actually there's a long tail of people called the rest of the world that actually don't understand what this means. And because it's scary and because it can make them feel stupid, they choose to stay away from this space because of it. Doing something small like that, on the one hand, someone might feel like, oh no, that's not a meaningful way to chip away at my vision. But for me, it is. Because for me, I know it compounds and it's, it's doing those little things that add up. Another example of this was, you know, seven years ago, I started blogging when I was based out in San Francisco. 
because I was learning so much about technology and venture capitalism, I wanted to find a way to share what I was learning with people like myself back home, like with my friends. Those blogs led me to get in touch with Arlen Hamilton at Backstage Capital. That opportunity led Arlen to hiring me as managing director of her London accelerator business. And that serendipity, you just have to let play out. And it comes away from just chipping away at your mission and you will attract those opportunities. If you're willing to deliver that quality consistently, it always plays out. First people I interviewed was this guy who I met at this product meetup ages ago. And he was really interesting. And he said this thing, which was the difference between a side hustle and a side project is that with a side hustle, you kind of get this mentality of if this doesn't pay dividends, then, then I'm out. And that can be a really dangerous mindset to get into. Whereas if you're focusing on like, what is my life's mission? You know, going back to that deathbed thing and going like, what, what will I regret, you know, at that point? And just think, well, at least I, I will know I've tried about something I care about rather than constantly worrying about the short term or the failure. I recently listened to a guy called Dr. Andrew Huberman, and he's a neuroscientist. And he talks about this comparison to Navy SEALs and the process that they go through to get selected, almost like self-selection, actually. Part of that process is going through this assault course of activities, which leads them to sleep deprivation. They go through like icy cold water. And what happens is that a lot of people quit along that process. It's very much self-selection. Only a certain number of people make it to the end. And through analysing a lot of these people, they notice that those that were able to have a meaningful goal and mission that they really believed in, and this concept of self-reward and not external validation were the common traits they saw in the people that could make it to the end. It's very similar with entrepreneurs and people creating side projects. Actually, if you have a sense of meaning behind what you're doing, and you actually have that sense of self-reward where you're celebrating your wins and your victories, but also reflecting and learning during your failures, then actually you abstract yourself from external validation, which is a lot of the noise oh, this person said this on Twitter, or this person said this in the comments on YouTube. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't actually matter. What matters is that you're seeking feedback from your true fans, and those are the people that you're serving. That is a tribe that you're loyal to, and that is the signal in this sea full of noise. And I think social media makes it so hard for people to really decipher between signal versus noise. Who am I trying to target versus who is actually using my service but isn't my target audience, which is why they're not sticking around. That's why for me, like I was so proud that, you know, at the four and a half year mark, I, I, I reached a thousand subscribers at my newsletter, you know, and for some people that's not momentous, but for me, it's really meaningful because I know that that thousand people have been nurtured. And the reason that 50 to 60% of them open that newsletter and that 40% of them click through into links is because they actually value this contribution that I make to their life every Monday. And for me, that is a win. I don't care that it's not 100,000. I don't care that I don't make money from my newsletter because I don't see my rewards and I don't see my learnings and my lessons and what I gain from these processes in just monetary gain. I want to go back to you just talking about signals versus noise because I think it's a really interesting point. And I'm curious whether you've had any criticism because I think noise takes two forms. One is just people giving you feedback maybe unnecessarily or that's not very helpful or just giving you their opinion and then the other one is actually criticism which can be harder to take. I was curious if you had any criticism online and, and how you navigate it. 
I'm going to give you two examples, offline and online. Offline, someone privately messaged me on WhatsApp when I received the MBE and had this discussion with me around, is it a dishonor or an honor to have an MBE because of the colonial past of the British Empire? And we had a fascinating conversation around people drawing the line where it's convenient to them. You know, so, you know, if I was totally against the British Empire and and what Britain has done and I hadn't forgiven certain actions and I didn't believe in a brighter picture of the future and being a part in shaping that future, I probably would have left this country and moved back to Ghana or somewhere else when I could afford to, which was years ago. But I haven't done that, you know, and I was asking this individual for them, where do they draw the boundaries? So they wouldn't accept the MBE, but they would benefit from the British Empire today in other ways. And it was a really fascinating conversation, but I loved that he privately came to have that conversation with me rather than to try and oust me on Twitter and just say that it's such a dishonest disgrace that you've taken his MBA and accepted it. Another example was with the ancient investing school. And this actually was on Twitter. And someone basically shared like, it's a disgrace that you're charging for this service. You know, someone that hasn't been through the school, someone that has never experienced it, someone that doesn't actually know me personally. And they started linking out to different books and resources where you can learn about angel investing. I politely said to the person that, look, in this world, we always have a sea of existing alternatives. And I didn't want to amplify this person's voice, right? So I, I replied privately. But I said, we have a sea of existing alternatives. And as a consumer, choice is a good thing. I encourage people to read that book. I encourage people to watch that thing on YouTube. But if you do look for community, if you do look for the value that we deliver through this course, we are also open and welcome to you. It's not either or. We're happy for you to not choose us. We are not here to serve the whole world. So I'm, I'm really at peace with receiving feedback. I'm at peace with the noise because I don't actually look or listen to a lot of the noise. So actually the feedback that I double down on is on those that apply to the angel investor school and those that have gone through it. Let's talk a bit about angel investing school. So where the sort of idea came from, what the first action was you took, how you felt putting it all out there. So the angel investor school... The kind of idea, actually, and the seeds for inception for where the idea came from is that, you know, my mission is to really democratize access to the knowledge, networks, and capital that exist in this space of technology in the UK, especially. And during my time at Backstage Capital, I noticed that we had around 1,900 applications for our accelerator program, and we only took in about 25 startups, which is less than 1%. So what happened to those 99% was one of the questions. And the other question was that 1% that we did invest in, we invested around $100,000 into their investment rounds. And a lot of them were raising between $300,000 and $500,000 in those rounds. And a lot of them were struggling to close those rounds. And it made me acutely aware that, you know, if you haven't got that network of friends and family that you can access capital from, it becomes really difficult to close that first round of funding. You know, and if you haven't got access to angel investors, it becomes almost impossible to close that first round of funding that you have. And that first round of funding really does correlate into outcomes. So if we take someone like Kevin Sistrom, the founder of Instagram, he talks about this process of, you know, starting this uh, restaurant listing business and his wife told him to double down on the photography and the images. And he doesn't know why, but this angel investor invested money into him that gave him the runway to allow him to pivot and create Instagram. So if not for that angel investor and whatever went into that decision, whether it was biased or it wasn't, if not for that money, he would not have the runway that would afford him the time to experiment and try things out and arrive at that pivot, which led to Instagram. And we know where that story is ended today. And that's why that first round of funding is so pivotal and, and actually so influential. 
And as an angel investor, you've got so much responsibility and influence over the outcomes of a startup. And that's what led me to saying that actually, you know, if less than one P in every pound is going to all female teams, if there's a lack of data on how many ethnic minority founders are getting funding, there's a lot more that I can do to contribute to solve this problem by really training up and activating diverse professionals who can then invest in the next generation of diverse founders. And that's where the Engine Investing School was born. I am curious about the process of going from that insight, which is, you know, increase the pool of diverse angels, because that's a really important first step for businesses to grow, and how that translated into the actual practical first steps of starting a school. So I've got a good friend, actually, who I co-founded my first business with 10 years ago, Mixtape Madness, uh, which my brother still runs today, funny enough. And he always says this saying or this quote about how me and him love to iterate in public. And the Angel Investing School very much happened in public because I sent out a tweet initially with a PDF that I created in Canva, which showed a really glossy looking logo and cover page, which said nothing. And then a, a second page, which had the curriculum. Looking back at it now, it's really embarrassing. And I hope you don't go back and find that tweet. And it was just a two page of sharing this concept of this school and the curriculum that I would cover for this school. I spoke to about 10 angel investors in my network who were sharing the commonalities and the lessons they learned and the things they wish they knew at the start. And that's what informed shaping what the curriculum was for the school. So step one was almost having those conversations, which cost nothing but time. Actually, some people were introductions, so it was the first time I was meeting them. Step two was putting out this tweet just to validate demand and to see if there actually is a, a community of people out there that actually would value this. Step three was, oh, okay, there is demand for this. Let's see how many of them convert to actually register because they're actually interested in this. So I set up an application form on Airtable. Again, looking back, so embarrassing if you haven't <laughs> seen it, saw it. Because it wasn't designed, it was on the free plan, there was no logo or design on it. But this is the thing I didn't care about that. I just knew that I had to start small and iterate. So I put that out on Twitter, on Twitter and on LinkedIn, about 50 people registered. Step four was to send an email out, and this is all manual and not automated at this point, to say, look, it costs 300 pounds. Here's a link to pay. This is what you're going to get out of it. Let me know if you're interested. I'm happy to jump on a call if you'd be more comfortable doing so. And I'll give a 100% refund if you're unsatisfied with the service. I started promising a lot in this email looking back at it. But 15 people converted and paid. Not immediately, like some of them were a struggle. I had to go back and forth and hold their hand a little bit. But 15 people paid in total. So I was like, yes, now the value risk has been validated. So people value it and they're willing to pay. Excellent. It actually paid up front before I've delivered the service. Kind of like Kickstarter as well, which was awesome. So now the pressure was on me to curate this experience, this roster of facilitators who were experienced angel investors to lead on each week. Because I knew that I needed people that were respected, that actually have more skill in the game than I do to teach these lessons that they've learned on a particular topic like sourcing and finding great entrepreneurs or you know we've got a week on deal structuring and tax relief which is actually led by a lawyer and an accountant it's the one week that's a little bit different so i found all those facilitators and i actually found a partner to host us for that first course in google for startups but then covid hit i had to really think about what am i trying to achieve here what's the value that i want to deliver so then i had to stitch together using slack and zoom building a community online and serving that course through doing that online. And that was actually the first experience for the Angel Investing School. And the first time that I did the Angel Investing School in April, 
I was trying out the pricing and I priced it at 300 pounds. And at the end of that process, it was quite scary and daunting. But I asked them, did you feel that of value for money? Do you feel like it was too cheap? Would you have paid it if it was £495? Would you pay it if it was £800? And it's a really difficult question because it's very theoretical. It's like, yeah, they're saying something, but they don't have to actually follow through on it. So then I have to make a decision based on that insight as to whether am I going to try out what I've learned here or not? And I did. And I increased the pricing and now I've stuck with that pricing and people have paid it and people still feel value for money. So I know that actually that experiment has worked out, but I knew that my audience would be forgiven if it hadn't. So when those people first bought the tickets, before you'd even sort of put the structure together fully, did you have any sense of panic in terms of, can I deliver this? You know, is this going to go well? Or did you feel quite confident that you'd done sort of enough of the pre-thinking that you would go at least quite well? No, I definitely had a sense of anxiety and feeling like I've never actually facilitated a school before, built a curriculum before. I don't know how these actual investors are going to turn up and how they're going to deliver this course. And then once I identified these risks, I guess, I, I did an exercise called a pre-mortem. I imagined in six or seven weeks' time, if this was a total failure, what's all of the things that could go wrong? And that exercise was morbid in one sense, but really helpful in another because it helped me list all of the risk and dependencies that I could now manage more proactively now that I've actually written them down. And I think there's a power to just getting things out of your head and onto paper or onto something digital so that it's actually written down. Let's take the risk of, I don't know if these investors are going to be able to deliver on this week. And what I did is I'd have two prep calls with the facilitators. The first one to make them aware of what the, the subject matter that they're covering. I gave them a few bullet points and I gave them a slide template so there's consistency in what they're delivering. So that reduced the risk of failure and that heightened the confidence that I know what I'm getting into with this facilitator now. Were the facilitators volunteer? They were all paid because I recognized that they were giving up, you know, one and a half to two hours of their evening that, that they could be spending with their family, with their kids. I couldn't afford to pay them thousands of pounds, but I could show a token of my appreciation. And if they politely rejected the offer to pay, at a minimum, I'll donate that money to a charity for them of their choice, or I'll just send them a gift like some flowers and some chocolates or a hamper. I'll pay the facilitators £150 each. If you think about it, I'm charging people at the time £300 and I'm paying 50% of that to the facilitator, but 50% of one person's pay. And there's six facilitators or seven in total, that's just under £2,000, £1,500 maybe um, in, in payments to facilitators. But it was absolutely looking back the right thing to do and I still stand by it and now it's a natural part of our model. Are you planning to turn that into like an online course? It's a great question. So we're building out a funnel. So we've got an email course that we're developing, which is like a five-day email course to introduce you to the concepts of angel investing, which is free, but just to get people into the funnel and get people comfortable with the common terms and actually what, what this actually means in practice. And then there's a, a video course um, yet to be charged, but will be a lot cheaper than the live training course. The thing that I guess most people will probably take, which is almost a self-directed video online course. And then the live online trainings, what we do today would always be kind of like the anchor package. Like this is the thing that we actually do and we're known for. And one of the benefits of doing the full course is that you have the peer-to-peer -peer community. You get to build relationship with experienced angel investors. And we also have apprenticeship schemes where we get these graduates into angel syndicates so they can invest alongside more experienced angels who buddy up with them and walk them through actually doing their first deals, often at a reduced ticket size. 
So they're investing, let's say, £1,000 rather than £25,000 as part of a bigger deal with this group of more experienced investors. That's brought us, I think, to an interesting point, which is around comfort monetizing products. Mm. I think it's something that a lot of people find difficult. Often with side projects, it's something that people are passionate about. It's something that they feel very strongly about. Side projects are a lot like creative projects. They're a lot like artists in some ways. Sometimes it can make you feel uncomfortable to charge for something. Mm. And I would love to know your thoughts on how you've moved past that idea that charging for something is a bad thing. Yeah, I think I think a lot of the times we undervalue ourselves and what feels like common sense and easy to us, we then apply it to the rest of the world. And that's where we skew how we price for certain services. So with the Angel Investing School, we charge £495 for this seven to eight week online learning experience with a community, peer-to-peer community and with experienced angel investors to teach each week of the course. LBS have a number of programs that teach angel investors but aim at high net worth individuals. They've got one with Local Globe called the Newton Program. They've got another one with Q Ventures, which is part of the Quintessentially Group, which is actually a concierge service for high net worth individuals. Each of those courses cost a few thousand pounds to take. The reason we coexist is because we're talking about a market here and they are focusing on high net worth individuals in their market. I am focusing on people that are retiring from a career and focusing on sometimes influencers or ex-professional athletes. But actually the core of my focus, the long tail of people like us who are from diverse backgrounds that have worked in companies for five to 10 years and just want to learn about this subject matter and either want to break into VC or want to learn how to get started with angel investing. And that's why we can coexist. And that's why we can charge different amounts. You know, so really understanding your market and your market position against existing players is really important to how you dictate your pricing. On the other end of that same pendulum, if I'm doing work with corporates, that's a four-figure sum, a five-figure sum to deliver that angel investing training over two days because it's a different proposition for a different market. And the reason I don't feel guilt is because it's actually a different experience from the seven-week school that they're getting tailored with the corporate gig. For example, with the seven-week school, I don't do any of the facilitation or teaching. With the corporate gig, I do the majority of the facilitation or teaching. So there's a price that I associate with my brand that goes into that. And this is when we talk about market positioning here and how you price products. If I think about the product management consulting that I do, I spent about five years building up my product management career officially. Unofficially, I've always been a product manager. I just didn't realize it was a job title. I worked at an international money transfer company called World First, learned from a great coach called Mark Abraham about what product management is and how to actually do it in practice. And then I cut my teeth as a freelancer working with clients such as Investic Bank. And I was helping them by creating these product playbooks, which were manuals for how you do product management inside your organization. And then I was building training and capability building workshops across that organization. So a very tailored offering for a certain type of client. But because there's not many other competitors swimming in that ocean, I could charge a high fee for that service. And I do that three days a week, that product coaching work. And then the angel investing school I do, I guess, one day a week, mainly around April and September. I want to hear what your thoughts are on this, on this same question as well. Well, I guess the reason I bring it up is I think pricing is difficult when you are doing something that is mission-based. And I think the reason for that is because let me give two examples. I might explain it a bit better. So let's say you're setting up a, what's a really commoditized thing 
direct to consumer milk delivery brand. You know how much that milk costs, you know what the rough costs are, and you know that it's a service. But when you're doing something that is, I'm trying to think of something really mission based, like what's an example of something really mission based? Like diversity inclusion workshops and the community around diversity inclusion. Perfect example. So with that, I mean, do you think that it's right to charge for stuff like that? And if so, what's the rationale? So charging for mission-based work is hard because a lot of the time it comes down to what is the right business model for this? If I think about the Angel Investing School, for example, I release so much for free. The podcast is for free. The Angel Investing School dictionary is for free. There's so much great content on the Instagram that I release for free. But then you have to figure out actually what within this model can I charge for and can make me money. And a lot of the times there's three ways that people look at pricing. And this isn't mutually exclusive, but is the guilt of feeling like I want to do this for free because the people can't afford the service that I'm providing. There's cost-based pricing, like it's cost me X to pay for Slack and these services. So I just want to charge that price so that I don't lose out because I'm paying for that cost and I'm trying to be genuine and transparent with my community. And then there's value-based pricing, which is based on the perceived value that you're delivering to your community. A lot of the times when people build communities, they're actually building almost like these kind of social network type models where the, the, the value is actually in the data and in the community that you build for the end consumer, which may be like a corporate. So you need to figure out how I can package that up to actually sell into that corporate or that end consumer. So then what we have here is a difference between our users and our customers. Because our users can access our service for free, whereas our customers are paying. Very similar to how on Facebook or Instagram, we're putting content on there for free and using the feed and the service for free, but small businesses are paying to advertise on those services. And I think a lot of these mission-based projects that are, are focused on community building, they need to, need to figure out who their users and their customers are and how they will make money. And a great example of that is something like Things Testing. It was an Instagram page that really just reviewed direct-to-consumer products for free for its users and its community. But then, like through the value that it was creating, it noticed that there was, was an opportunity to charge certain corporates and certain brands and certain VCs for this insight it was gaining from building such a community, really understanding the perceived value and to who. The hard thing with that is it often takes time. It means you can't charge from day one. It means you need to build a community of value and understand what that value is before you can start monetizing it. And it means often not monetizing necessarily of those users, but rather finding those customers that you can monetize. Sometimes that comes back as well to, am I serving the right audience? Right. So I explained with the angel investing school that ALBS are serving high net worth individuals that they can charge 1,600 to. If I charge that same fee to my users, I'll struggle to convert into actual users. I've actually got a partnership with one tech who pay a scholarship fee to give five free places to people who can't afford the £495 each term. And partnerships is actually a great way for you to serve your users for free and provide that value, even though someone else is paying for it. But you have to really understand the perceived value to that partner and why they'd be willing to pay for that thing. What data or what insight, or what metrics does it help them achieve? I understand the kind of companies that fund Wantech and the KPIs that they look for for Wantech. So I know that I can deliver on some of those KPIs to help them tell that story when reporting back. I think the three things that come up there are, think about it in terms of value. People are choosing to pay. You're not forcing anyone to buy your product, right? Mm. Like if, I was talking to um, an artist actually, because as a podcast episode, but she talked about a similar thing, which is like, 
you're not forcing anyone to follow you on Instagram. You're not, for, you know, people can choose freely. And I think it's the same with, with paying for stuff. And then the second point I think is around giving stuff for free, combining things, you know, making sure that there are some things that are free that you're just contributing to the world to help people. Mm. And then the third thing I think is really interesting is making sure that your business model optimizes for the for the impact that you want in the world and and seeing that those things aren't necessarily counterintuitive so with that one tech thing you know it's sort of a win-win thing but i was curious how you balance your own self-interest with lifting other people up it's a really good question because i don't think i'm the best at it a friend of mine who i've worked with before who is so self-giving and so selfless that sometimes it comes to the detriment of his own health and and mental health you know like not prioritizing rest and self-reflection and time for himself because of it i've created a set of values and guiding principles to just set boundaries around how i give my time regardless of how i'm feeling so for example i've got a rule called two and five which says that two even as a week in a pre and post-covid world I'll be willing to go to any event to speak at or just to attend or to socialize with friends or to have dinner with mates. But five evenings a week, I have to be home with family. Regardless of how many opportunities I have, I always have to make that trade-off decision to choose just two things in that week. And what I've noticed in doing that is I've got used to saying no. And I've become less guilty with that feeling of saying, no, I cannot speak at your event. No, I cannot be on that podcast. No, I cannot do that regardless if it's paid or it's free because I value this time that I'm preserving and using to spend with my family. Fridays are a good example of that. I avoid working at all costs. I try and just do activities with the little one and to try and be present at home and do things like the cleaning and the washing up and the stuff that remind people that I'm still a parent and I'm still a human. I still have an ordinary life like everyone else. And I value that time. And it's just important. And I just hold on to that regardless of the opportunity cost of doing these other things. What keeps me at peace with my contribution to the world and not really feeling like, is it enough? Isn't it enough? Is the fact that I'm playing the long game. And I know that it's a game of inches that is going to add up in the long term. And I'm at peace by looking back at every week through my tracker and knowing that I've made a meaningful contribution, even though it's just an inch. And that's okay. What's next for Angel Investing School? There's a beauty in just enjoying the process and falling in love with the process and putting no pressure on myself into the future long-term steps. And then I want to try and test out either next year or the year after doing one or two other European countries. I have no idea like how that's going to go, but I'd love to just test it out and give it a go. Thank you so much. It was so amazing to speak to you. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. This is really enjoyable. I feel like because of your emails, I've been keeping abreast of what's been going on. I feel like I'm a part of it in a, in a different way. Thanks so much for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. To hear more about Out of Hours, sign up to our newsletter at outofhours.org. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving a review. It really helps. <laughs>